Tantamount Season 1 is a true crime podcast on the Washington, D.C. serial killer, the Freeway Phantom. Due to the graphic nature, it is not intended for those under the age of 18. Hello, this is Blaine Pardo. And this is Victoria Hester, co-author to my dad and a best-selling true crime author as well. Welcome to episode six of Tantamount season one, the mysterious case of Robert Askins. To bring everyone up to speed, in our last episode, we covered the Green Vega gang and their possible, if not implausible, connections to the Freeway Phantom serial killing spree. After years of investigating by multiple jurisdictions, None of the gang members were ever charged with a single one of the Freeway Phantom murders. There is one detective in the Washington MPD that went off on his own looking for suspects beyond the Green Vega gang. Lloyd Davis did some old-fashioned gumshoe detective work and had come up with another possible suspect, Robert Elwood Askins. Dad, why don't you walk us through what brought Askins to the attention of Detective Davis? I'd be happy to. Davis was lured into Askins as a suspect by two cases. It began on July 8, 1976, in the District of Columbia. 25-year-old Martina Stewart was going home, walking along 8th Street Southeast, when a late-model green car pulled up beside her. The driver flashed a badge and told her he was a police officer and ordered her into the car. She quickly learned he was not a policeman. He drove her to a row house and threatened her to get inside. She was taken upstairs where she was raped and sodomized. I'll give you this much, she was a fighter. She struggled with it, hitting him in the head with a can opener, only to be later subdued. Okay, here's where it gets weird. He gave her a pencil and dictated a note to her to write, stating that she had been aggressive to him and was thus absolved of the responsibility of the physical abuse she had received. She tried to escape from a second-story window, but was caught. The next day, her attacker drew a bath and bathed her, had her redress, and allowed her to leave. Seriously? What the hell? Who rapes someone and then lets them go? Hang on. It gets stranger. She flags down a police officer who was, in her words, cold and unconcerned. She eventually made her way to the Washington General Hospital, and an officer there took her statements. When that officer tried to get her to identify where she had been taken, Stuart misled her, afraid of confronting her attacker. As a result, her case went cold, and it went cold fast. On March 18, 1977, Gloria McMillan, a 23-year-old who lived on 3rd Street Northwest, was at her apartment waiting for an elevator when she was approached from behind. Her attacker held a big stick, which later turned out to be a piece of pipe across her throat, and dragged her back to his car. He drove her to a corner row house at 1700 M Street Northeast, which is at the intersection with 17th Street Northeast. He forced her upstairs and raped and sodomized her. He tried to use the piece of pipe on her, but she fought back. Then, strangely, he jammed a piece of paper into her vagina. In one of her struggles, he tried to throw her out the window, but she broke it and became badly cut. He told her, 
There is no hope for you. You are going to die here anyway. According to the police report, every once in a while he'd rub his head like he had a headache and then he'd laugh. He then said, I didn't mean to hurt you. He seemed to have a split personality. Like Ms. Stewart, he poured a bath for her, cleaned her. He even dressed her wounds. He forced her into his kitchen and approached her with a garbage bag and a knife. He said he was going to take me out to Virginia and finish me off. She then said, and I'm quoting here, kicked him in the dick. She bolted out and made her way to the nearby Amico gas station where she passed out. When she awoke in the hospital, she was on a gurney with a bag with a hamburger from McDonald's in it. It was suspected that her attacker may have been the person to leave that bag, which is both weird and creepy on its own. She led authorities to his house, and 57-year-old Robert Elwood Askins was arrested. Later, Martina Stewart would identify Askins as her attacker as well. There are some things here that really stand out for me about Askins. First off, he's impersonating a police officer in one case to get his victims into his car using a fake badge. The fact that he had a fake badge is suspicious all on its own. It points to someone that had planned his crimes out. Posing as a police officer is something that we've long suspected that the freeway phantom did. Second, sexual assault was a hallmark of the phantom. Askins did sexually assault these victims. Third, he bathed both of these victims. We know from our discussions with former detective Romaine Jenkins that the freeway phantom most likely bathed his victims as well. Then there's the note that he made Miss Stewart write. The phantom did the very same thing in the case of Brenda Woodard when he made her write a note that was left on her body. Seriously, that is a pretty big coincidence. On the surface, I can see why Detective Davis zoomed in on Robert Askins as a suspect. That reference to Virginia creeps me out as well. When Brenda Crockett called home, she claimed she was in Virginia. The fact that he specifically mentions taking Miss McMillan to Virginia is a pretty interesting coincidence. Then again, there's some things that make me hesitate with Askins. First is his age. The guy was born in 1919. He was 58 when he committed the attacks on Gloria McMillan. That would mean that he would have been at least 51 or 52 during the freeway phantom spree. It doesn't rule him out, but it does make me feel like he is less inclined to have him as a predator. Maybe that was part of his way of luring girls in, that he was older and somehow less threatening. It's possible. I can't rule him out alone on his age. Then again, when you look at McMillan and Stewart, they were older females, both in their 20s. The freeway phantom went after young girls. Why did he change his targets? Also, why stop for four years before he struck again? On top of that, he let these victims go. The Phantom never did that, at least not that we know of. We dug into Robert Askin's past when working on our book, The Freeway Phantom. These rapes were not his first brush with the law. Dad, why don't you walk us through his rather bizarre history of murder? Okay, but hold on, this is going to be a bumpy ride. In 1938, Askins was a student at Minor Teachers College in the District of Columbia. He was not just a student. In his spare time, he was a police informant, taking part in sting operations. Well, that would make him pretty familiar with police techniques. Good catch. Askins was struggling as a student. Apparently, there was an area known for prostitution near Howard University at the time, and Askins frequented that area. He picked up a social disease and had to be treated. Back then, in the 1930s, this was pretty much a major embarrassment. 
Well, Askins decided to do something about the prostitution problem all on his own. On December 21st, 1938, 26-year-old Elizabeth Brown was stabbed near Freeman Court where she worked as a prostitute. Askins had been seen but not identified at the time. She died shortly after the attack, but at the same time, the killing of a prostitute really didn't warrant a lot of investigation by the authorities. On December 28, 1938, he obtained some potassium cyanide from a neighbor. Now, bear in mind, he's a chemistry student at the time. He mixed it into a bottle of whiskey and set off for Freeman Court, the epicenter of the red light district. There, he met Alice C. Brown Patterson, who invited him up to her apartment. There, he met with three other prostitutes who lived with Patterson, Ethel Prentice, Arlene Blackwell, Amanda Powell, and Ruth McDonald. Askins poured them all a drink, including one for himself. He offered an obscene toast, followed by a claim that he would pay $1 for whoever could drink the whiskey first. The women took him up on his challenge, but Askins didn't drink. The other girls claimed it burned and made them sick, where poor Ruth McDonald slammed it all back. She passed out in pain, and the girls took her to the hospital, and Askins fled. Police arrested Askins and learned that his intention was to, and I quote here, kill them all at one time, if he could, and he further stated he was going to kill them all. He was going to kill all the prostitutes in town, if possible. He claimed he planned to kill himself as well, but it hesitated at the last minute. Further, and I'm quoting here, he was going to orchestrate a purge of the prostitutes. The poisonings, in other words, were just the start of what he had planned. Why? Well, according to Askins, he had developed a hatred of women because he had contracted a venereal disease. They showed his picture to the witnesses of the Elizabeth Brown murder, and he was identified as her killer as well. The court admitted him to the Gallagher Hospital for observation, where he attacked three orderlies with a chair and had to be restrained. Askins then shifted to more of a catatonic state. The court psychiatrist had ruled him to be incompetent to stand trial. The charges were set aside and he was committed to St. Elizabeth's Hospital. We'll come back to that a little bit later in another episode. Askins should have been locked away forever. He was clearly a threat to society. In 1949, he was found to be free of psychotic symptoms, and by 1952, he was released on an unsuspecting public. Seven months later, Lori Cook, a 42-year-old lady of the evening, took a man later identified as Robert Askins up to her room. Her body was found the next morning, strangled. That's key to remember that was the primary means of killing that the freeway phantom used. In March of 1953, Miss Marie Sweeney was almost strangled by Askins as well. She eventually got the description to the authorities, and they spotted Robert Askins near Logan Circle, where the recent crimes had been committed. The charges against Cook were dropped due to lack of evidence and were fairly weak against Sweeney, so the prosecutors decided to dig up their murder charge against Ruth McDonald now that Askins was out of St. Elizabeth's. The trial took place in 1955, some 17 years later after the murder. Robert Askins was found guilty and sentenced to jail. Of course, there were appeals, and Askin was finally set free again in 1958 because at the time, the District of Columbia had a statute of limitations on murders, and Askins had been tried after that had already lapsed. Essentially, he had gotten out again on a technicality. Now, from 1958 to 1977, Askin seemed to have avoided murdering any women, at least none that were attributed to him if you don't count the freeway phantom victims. 
He worked at the National Science Foundation, where he worked as a GS-8 computer technician, which was pretty bleeding edge in 1977. For a while, he dropped off of police radar. But not off ours, or Detective Davis's. Victoria, you referenced the note he had Martia Stewart write and left with her. When we worked on the book, I did some digging into how many times killers left notes with their victims in Washington, D.C. during the period. As it turns out, it happened two other times. A U.S. Marine Corporal, Christopher S. Brady, killed in the Washington Navy Yard on September 1, 1971, had a racially charged note that was left with his body. Richie H. Reed, a government economist, was killed in the fifth floor men's room at the new executive office building on the 1st of October, 1971. The killer left a note with Reed's body that read in part, the pigs must get out of our community now. In another line it read, no European will be safe in our black people's city again. If you don't live here, stay out and let us black people have our jobs to support our families. The revolution is now power to the people. So, both of these notes were not written by the victims, and don't bear any similarity to the note left on Breda Woodard's body by the Freeway Phantom. Other than that, Robert Askins was the only other person to have his victim to write a note that he left with her. That stands out to me. Me too. We learned through court and prison documents that Askins had a lot of issues in his past that may have pointed early on to some problems. In 1938, he was out of school for a short period of time. While riding a bike, he fell and suffered a head injury that left him unconscious for almost two weeks. He recovered and claimed that he had not noticed any behavioral changes, but that did not mean he did not suffer from them. Askins was raised by his mother, who was only 15 when she had gotten married. His father died when he was only nine years old, and he was raised by his mom and his sister. So there was no solid male role model for him. When he was 15, his mother remarried. He protested so strongly to their union that for three years she would not let her husband live with them because it would upset Robert. That gives us a pretty weird view of his home life. I mean, how many serial killers have mommy issues? Too many. During his trial, Askins changed lawyers three times. He was eventually represented by R. Kenneth Mundy, who would earn fame later for representing Mayor Marion Barry during his trial on drug charges. To be blunt, Askins was a piece of work. He claimed that he was the victim of Martina Stewart, that he had picked her up to help her out and had caught her trying to rob him. In one letter from his attorney pointed out some of his defense issues, and I quote here, I have showed some skepticism as to whether a jury would believe that you would give such a large sum of money, $100, and spend 10 hours doing nothing with a woman that you describe as a streetwalker and that you had never met before and had simply approached you on the streets. In other words, Askins was simply a good Samaritan and these women were all liars. Well, the court psychiatrists were split on his sanity. They believed he was sane enough to go to trial, that he could actually help in his own defense, but they couldn't rule out that he was sane at the time that the crimes were committed. For his part, Askins refused to admit that he had ever killed Ruth McDonald, despite the confession he had made to police decades earlier. All women are liars to Askins. That's pretty clear in his correspondence. So were the doctors at St. Elizabeth's. He claimed their interview notes were all lies as well. 
Well, the good news for society was that Robert Askins was convicted of the assaults on Stewart and McMillan and went to jail for the rest of his life. This time, he didn't get out on a technicality. Lloyd Davis went after him as a freeway phantom suspect like a pit bull on a roasted chicken. He got search warrants issued to look for the source of the green fibers or any of the evidence that the killer might still have. They dug up his yard. They searched his car. They didn't find anything that could link him to the crimes physically. Of course, six years had passed since the phantom murders occurred, so the source of those green fibers could have been long lost. James Trainum told us about the search warrants, quoting him, I think Brenda was missing button off of her coat. They found a button. The button was the same size as the buttonhole on her coat, but it was a different kind of button. It was a different type of button. They were stretching it, trying to make it match the threads from the button to the coat. Sure, follow up on a lead. But the way it was worded was that they were trying to shape the evidence to fit their theory. That happens a lot. Bottom line is, there was no physical evidence found. Well, they did find one thing. In a court appeal that he had a copy of in his desk was the word tantamount. Davis checked and Askin's co-workers claimed that he had used that word at work. On its own, it's not incriminating. But that word is unique because it does turn up in the note left on Brenda Woodard's body. It is a pretty unique word. I mean, I've never used it until we started working on this book. I admit that on the surface that it sounds strange. But in our interview with James Trainum, I remember his thoughts on that. Quoting him, they kept running down that word, tantamount. Suddenly, every suspect that they were running down used that word. It's like when you come up on the scene of a robbery and they say they were robbed by a guy wearing a clown outfit. You turn the corner and suddenly everybody has a clown outfit on. That's just the way it is. True. Still, that is a pretty unique bit of vocabulary. We were able to get Askins' prison records. He informed on other prisoners and then complained that it made him a target while he was in prison. He changed from Catholic to Christian scientist while in jail as well. In one instance, in 1983, he got into a brawl with a prisoner who led the Seventh-day Adventists over a family day event, hardly the actions of a man of God. Askins underwent psychiatric evaluations, and we'll post some of those up in our blog for you to read. They're a bit strange. Askins never really owned up to any of his crimes. He wrote the FBI asking for a polygraph test to clear his name, but it was declined. He tried to pressure his psychiatric evaluator to help him get that approved, that the test would somehow exonerate him in some way. According to one report, and I'm quoting here, I would never knowingly harm anyone. The reason I got this sentence is based on false accusations. Fabricated accusations. The trial was based utterly on false. I would never kidnap anyone. His anger towards the female sex leaked out during his talks. Women will do, uh, some people will make an accusation against anybody. He went on to say that he had been offended that the jury had found him guilty. Askins was evermore the victim. His final prison prognosis, he does not appear to be suffering from any psychotic or mood disorder that would require mental health treatment. On April 30th, 2010, Robert Elwood Askins died in a federal prison of a lung mass, apparently having refused medical treatment. You know, I still feel that he may have been the freeway phantom. 
Sure, his age was a factor, but the first thing they tell you about serial killer profiles is that they are guidelines, that you cannot use them to exclude suspects. I agree. Of all the suspects we found in our research, he's the one that stands out. In the next episode of Tantamount, the FBI profile for the Freeway Phantom offers some tantalizing clues as to who the killer might be. Also, dive with us into the intriguing world of geographic profiling that was done on the case in 2006 and where it leads us. Join us for Episode 7, Profiles of the Freeway Phantom. Tantamount is based on the book by the same name written by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. It is available from Wild Blue Press on Amazon.com. You can go to the author's blog at blainepardo.wordpress.com for additional information on these episodes. The Freeway Phantom is an unsolved case. All suspects named in this podcast are presumed innocent until proven guilty. If you have information that could help authorities, please call the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department at 202 202- seven two seven nine zero nine nine or via email at unsolved dot murder at dc dot gov. Tantamount is written and produced by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. Our music was written and performed by Ed Miller, production assistance provided by Cindy Pardo.